This is the Cop Think Podcast, where we answer the question, why do the police do what they do? I'm the host, Brian Casey. My guest is Commander Josh Legault. Um, he is an expert in, and I did fill that in, because I actually think you're an expert in a couple things. <laughs> That's when very I, kind when, of you to say that. What When I said that, what did you think I was going to say? Well, an expert in uh, understanding police use of force and human performance under stress. Wow. Okay. That's our topic then. All right. Actually, we talked it before, and that was going to be our topic. I abbreviated abbreviated to use of force. You know, and just and now you're the commander of the um, property crimes unit. Correct. But previous to that, you were the watch commander. How long were you doing that? Uh, I was watch commander for eight months, and prior to that, I was assigned to the special operations unit, which was created after the shooting death of Philando Castile. Yeah. And we, as a department, had to respond to the civil unrest in our city. So tell us, tell, tell the listeners what the watch commander's job is. So the watch commander is in charge of after-hours police operations. Uh, we're assigned at, uh, to work 5 p.m. till 3 a.m. And we uh, supervise all the police actions. We approve the determination for probable cause to make arrests. Um, and we handle... Um, the uh, supervisory tasks that take place when the other uh, sergeants and commanders are either off or occupied with other tasks. So uh, the patrol officer may think of it as you run the city at night. You may not think of it that way, but they also know that you're the guy that they have to run every arrest by. Correct. And was going to read their uh, their arrest reports. That's correct. We approved all in-custody arrest reports made by officers. Uh, we helped to evaluate uh, uh, use of force incidents and made notifications. It's a fair statement that the cops would say that our watch commander is in charge after hours, and that's true. And we're in charge uh, right up until it's time to notify a chief or a commander of a district about something that happened that they want to be aware of. See, you seem like you would be really well suited for that watch commander job. Partly, even this the my my recollection of going in there is, you know, if you used force, if you fought with a guy, if you hit him with something. You know, you're going to have to have a conversation with you. And also, too, is just, um, you know, just to talk about your, you know, they, they, they'd, they'd ask you questions or you'd have mm -hmm. to be able to articulate why you did what you did. Well, that's the really a magic statement because the articulation is really important. And articulation without coaching the writer or the officer about what they saw or what they perceived. Uh, so much a part of the watch commander's job is to help our officers understand that everything's going to be okay. Our police officers, by and large, do great work all the time. And yet every case or every incident can be extraordinarily different or only subtly different. And yet because of those differences, uh, people need guidance to see the way through our protocols and procedures, reporting requirements, and uh, to ensure that uh, everything is uh, is taken care of as far as uh, procedure and protocol. But you know what, so you bring that up and this is what um, is interesting. So you have a lot of education, direct experience, and you've given a lot of thought to use of force and you've uh, maybe done expert testimony and such. But you were the watch commander when, let's just call them regular street cops were coming in and they had, they had used force, for example, and you had to actually, actually help them go back and go back. Why did you do what you did? Because I think some cops take certain actions without a lot of thought. And that's not a negative. I mean, they're, they're, um, they're responding, they're reacting. You do this, I'll do that kind of thing. Correct. And just so you kind of all take it apart afterwards. I mean, that was a lesson I had to learn as a police officer. I didn't want my thinking to slow me down too much. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Pardon me. So sometimes you would act and then go, oh boy, I hope, I hope I did the right thing. Well, and that's, there's a, a term for that. The, the thought that goes into any professional's need to respond quickly, given a situation, whether they're a police officer or an airline pilot or a race car driver, a school teacher, the thought and preparation that went into that decision happened long before the context in which the decision was made. And the term is called recognition prime decision-making. That's a big set of words, but essentially it, underlines what you just said, that an officer makes a decision in the moment based on training and experience that they've had in order to resolve a situation that they're confronted with. 
That's also why I said in my role as a watch commander or really any supervisor shouldn't be coaching officers about what to say. It's to draw out of them the factors that they observed in real time to take a moment and draw uh, uh, to memory what it is that they saw and observed at the time so they can effectively articulate it. You know, that uh, I had an experience years ago. It was a, a, a time I didn't shoot a guy. And, and like a lot of cops could have said, I could have or I should, maybe even should have. And it was a situation where we were looking for this fellow that had a gun, had been threatening people. It was nighttime. We couldn't find him. Then we started to think we're actually at the wrong address, that kind of thing. And we're all in our squad cars. I remember looking up. Um, back then, we used a map book trying to figure out if we were even in the right spot. And then I look up and I see him approaching us with his long gun. And it was just a silhouette. I was the first one to saw him. I yell, uh, gun. I pop out of the car. And um, I remember um, pointing my gun at his chest. And my mind had progressed so far, I saw that I shot him three times in the chest. Bang, bang, bang. Well, I didn't shoot him. But it was almost like that basketball shot where you shoot it and you picture it going in and it goes in. And um, anyway, we're yelling at him. He drops the gun. Turns out he's a senile old man with an unloaded long gun. Um, so really grateful we didn't shoot him. But I remember afterwards thinking, why didn't I shoot him? Why didn't I shoot him? Because he had really exposed these other cops that were had his bat, their back to him and all this stuff. And I remember thinking... Something about his silhouette looked relaxed, hmm. just the way his shoulders were. So anyway, it's a long story to just say that I just noticed this most subtle thing, and I didn't know in that moment, but afterwards I did know in that. I did kind of analyze it afterwards. Sure. And part of that decision in the moment, it's really difficult to say why you didn't or sometimes why an officer does. It oftentimes rests on the overall assessment of the context. And you know, when you describe in your memory the silhouette of the person and the, what appeared to you to be a relaxed stance as opposed to an aggressive or hostile stance, that all has to do with the blading of the shoulders, the uh, positioning of the feet, the charging of the muscles of the body, meaning is, are the knees bent in a wide stance or are they narrow? Are the arms tense or in, a, in what we'd call in firearms a final firing position? You know, all of those things add significant contextual depth to an officer's decision making. And each officer is unique. It's not uncommon at all to have a circumstance where one officer may use a firearm and, and, and fire shots where an officer immediately next to them or close in proximity doesn't. And it's because they are perceiving different things at different times. Those independent actions aren't a uh, judgment and shouldn't be misunderstood as a mistake by one or the other officer, it has to do with their perception in the moment. Well, and I think um, I can imagine situations where um, cops don't realize why they did what they did. You know, I think this is actually human behavior where there's a part of your brain that maybe makes decisions. Maybe the animal part of your brain and your more conscious brain observes that behavior and thinks that it made the decisions. Uh, potentially. So many of our quick decisions are made. And uh, uh, this is where our, our proponents and our critics really need to understand how the brain works. Because you're right, the, the low part of our brain, the amygdala and the hippocampus is receiving information constantly. And in particular, those are the fear centers of the brain. So if an officer is concerned for their safety or the safety of someone else, those synapses and neurons are firing at a much higher rate of speed than um, the uh, prefrontal cortex and the thinking higher consciousness part of the brain. And most people go about their day, and so do police officers, having conscious thoughts that occur to them that they can either see in their mind's eye or they can hear, almost like they're being spoken. And yet in a tense, um, uncertain, and rapidly unfolding series of events, it's the fear center of the brain that is uh, putting together information that's being received uh, through our different senses, whether it's vision or hearing or both, or even trying to sort out information that's coming in because of perceptual narrowing, what people would call tunnel vision or tunnel hearing. It has to do with what the human being in that moment is focusing narrowly on because of the influence of stress and pressure at the time. One of the things that I know that they're bothered by is 
as they kind of repopulate that thinking brain, if, if that's the case, if they went into that fear brain for a while, they would discover there's gaps and crooked lines in their mm -hmm. memory, um, maybe temporarily. And sometimes they think, geez, it, it is, did I not function well? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, cops sometimes don't recall how many rounds they shot in an officer-involved shooting thing or something. But I think sometimes it's reassuring to know that actually it was a sign of a high-functioning brain, not a low-functioning brain, where you actually don't recall certain events because of that super focus or whatever you described it as. Correct. It, when After the fact and when the pressure and, um, and stress of a situation goes away, the brain begins to put things together uh, in memory. It's called, con or consul it's called consolidation of memory. That's why uh, for anyone, whether it's an officer involved in a critical incident or uh, a victim of sexual assault or domestic assault, which is a critical incident, it doesn't involve police work or gunfire, but it's an emotionally overwhelming circumstance with physical conditions beyond the person's control. After any incident like that for any human being, because it's a human factor, it's not just police work or officers trained in wearing uniforms. It's how the brain works when stress and pressure has been relieved or taken care of. And the brain starts to put things together in a more uh, cogent pattern, but it exposes gaps in memory. It exposes uh, crooked lines, as you put it, because the attention of the person is directed very narrowly on the threat or the concern at the time. And yet the brain is still receiving information that it's, it's not forgetting it. It's just not paying attention to it. Attention is like a commodity. It's as if you have $100 in cash in front of you and you can only put it where you want to put it. And when it's, once it's spent, it's gone. And so when we're putting all of our attention onto one thing, it's not unlike driving a car. And although I didn't experience this coming here, it happens frequently where some traffic problem happens in front of you and you're no longer hearing the passengers that are with you. The radio leaves your, your conscious thought and you begin to focus narrowly on the problem that's uh, manifesting itself in front of you. That's perceptual narrowing. The radio's still playing. And later on through a cognitive interview or the way that memory consolidates itself, you may remember later the sound in the background or the feel of the seatbelt across your chest or, or whatever thing that your brain discarded for the moment may come back to you in a memory. And it's natural for officers to think they weren't functioning well, but that's how the brain is supposed to function in a survival situation. Yeah, I think um, I'm actually hearing you talk like this and know about the Force Science Institute and having met some attorneys that understand these, these things that you're describing very well in law enforcement is really reassuring because I think a lot of officers are um, misunderstood in the courts or falsely accused of sinister behavior when it, it was um, the, just a failure of people to understand uh, why they do what they do, you know, and maybe the cops don't even know it sometimes. Right. And that's the benefit and a privilege that I have because I do work as an expert witness. Uh, I don't have a website and I don't advertise. Attorneys um, know about my work and from time to time I get a call from a different office or a different shop because they've asked their colleagues, do you know anybody that can help explain this? And so then I'll receive a phone call out of the blue and I'll receive evidence and give my my first opinion to them and tell them what I think about the circumstances and then they decide if what I have to say is helpful to them or not. Um, we need people in all walks of life who have expertise in things to be able to explain how something's going to work or how something's not going to work or fundamentally how to best understand a situation so that a person who doesn't have that uh, skill and ability can be led to appreciate either where the officer's coming from, where they may have erred, where they may have made excellent decisions based on the facts presented to them at the time. Yeah, but it turned out to be um, unfortunate or whatever. It's tragic in every case. There's nothing you know, good about a police use of force. It can be constructive and serve the needs of the person the officer is rescuing or, or the officer themselves. Um, but our actions when we impact people physically or use 
uh, force against them is it's tragic in every case. Well, play that back a little bit. It's, it's so use of force has a broad range. So I'm I'm not sure what I if I understand why it's tragic or um, not good in every situation. I mean, um, uh, soft hand techniques. You know, pushing a guy down. You know, mm-hmm. putting your hand on somebody. That's use of force too, right? It is, and I don't mean to play with words, but good for me implies a value judgment. And something I've tried to express to officers I've provided training to over the years is to understand or appreciate the impact of any use of force on the person from their perspective. Now, that's not our responsibility to make sure they have a good or a bad experience while being, uh, uh, while having force applied to them. But good is a matter of perspective from the beholder. And, you know, tragic is a very strong word. Uh, certainly the use of severe amounts of force, um, high levels of force oftentimes end in tragedy. Um, and in particular for the person being affected by the use of force. Um, but the goal is to use force for constructive reasons, to support the law, to protect officers, to protect uh, members of the general public. And sometimes that does come at the expense of the person who is having force used against them. Well, have you ever had a case where a guy said, thanks, I, I deserve that or I needed that? Uh, personally, yes. Uh, you know, stopping someone in a bar or pulling someone out of a car or breaking up a fight and pinning them up against a wall. That has happened uh, where, you know, I, someone is grateful. You know, I really appreciate you pulling me out of that. That's not who I am. That's not how I regularly behave. I needed someone to watch over me is the message they're, yeah. they're, they're providing. Um, but in many cases, uh, the people that we use force upon are angry and resentful about the situation itself. And then sometimes perceive that the use of force, therefore, was um, unnecessary or unfair or unkind. We, we can't be worried about their perception on it. We just have to understand that the people that we're engaging also have perceptions about the incident. Hmm. And we can, I believe we can use that to inform training and how we, um, how we uh, contemplate the use of force in the future. I guess the reason I'm struggling with a little bit is that the message is, um, seems like police force force by the police is a really useful, important thing in society because um, not everyone behaves and some behavior needs to be corrected. Some behavior needs to be immediately stopped. So it seems like a good thing to have. So I just haven't thought of it maybe as much as I could about from the receiver's perspective, but I guess. Well, and it's, I don't think we have to be bothered by that. And I agree with you that, um, you know, my personal belief is that we need police and police officers are uh, trained to and empowered to use force by the law in order to stop violent and resistive behavior, to uh, restrict people from access to areas they shouldn't have access to for their own protection or the protection of other people. But there's a, what I have, what I've learned in my experience studying use of force is that if we as officers apply our own value judgments to the the concept of force, whether we're applying the force or we're administrating after the fact or we're developing training, that can create an imbalance in our understanding of it. You know, there there may be a police administrator who doesn't think that an officer should ever strike someone with their feet in a kick. And yet Striking with the feet may be just right based on the circumstance. And one can argue that it's within another big term, but generally accepted police practices to apply a a leg strike or a kick in a certain circumstance. And yet other people may say, well, you don't ever kick anybody when they're down. And that's a misunderstanding of the context, which is why in, in my experience learning about this over the past you know, 23 years as a police officer and about 18 as a court-recognized expert is we have to uh, try to take away the value within the application of force. On many force continuums, you have, um, it's represented either in a, you know, previously we had a, a kind of a speedometer at the St. Paul Police Department and then there were colors that went along with that. 
and soft empty hand control was kind of pastel yellow. Nobody's going to get hurt. And then as the speedometer moved from left to right, it turned into orange and then red and then severe thunderstorm red, somebody's going to the hospital. And that's where deadly force was, was on the other side. And there's no argument to be had that the use of deadly force is less severe or comparable in severity to soft, empty hand control techniques like handcuffing or escorts. But the challenge for me as an expert is to help people understand that these exist on a level playing field. If we take out the value of severity of the application, then it becomes easier to divine which is appropriate and why. Because we, we suspend our judgment on values about the severity of force and whether or not it was that serious. In the moment the officer made a decision based on a set of facts presented to them and evaluated that based on their training and experience, that this was the right tool. It's, my, uh, my parents are supportive of me in my career and always have been. They knew that I always wanted to be a police officer and my parents would remark about how excited I'd get when the police cars would drive by with their sirens on. So they knew I wanted to don't do this my entire life. And my mother's son is not capable of shooting anybody. It just, it, that's a fact. But the reasonably trained police officer that I've become is capable of using deadly force to protect a person or himself or another officer from death or great bodily harm with that action. And so where, and that's where the value judgment in my mind has to be suspended. Well, I think in, I think in a deadly force encounter, I don't know if, if cops are in the value part of their brain. They're in the, um, you do you do this, I'll do that kind of part of their brain. I would agree it's 100%. Home. I mean, I can think of some use and force encounters I've been where this kind of cool, um, cool, what would be the word, detachment comes over you. Mm -hmm. And that's, that. I think that, I think it's we're... Like a emotional. We're, we're saying the same thing. With the, or without emotion. Without emotion can translate into without a value judgment. Yeah. What we run into is down the road when uh, a video surfaces or eyewitness accounts surface about what happened. And then through that lens of history or the assessment about pe the way that it makes people feel, uh, you're then we right start on. adding value to it. And that's part of why I said these things end tragically. Um, so when, when a police officer watches a use of force video, like a cop watches a cop using force, um, you know, they say, oh, um, um, police use of force is always hard to watch. It's not hard to watch for cops because mm -hmm. I think cops look at it and go, oh, do you see how the guy projected his punch ahead? The cop should have caught that. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was a good move. You know, they, they look at it like they're watching hockey fights and analyzing fighting, you know, sure. and, and trying to learn from it. But if a, let's just call them civilian or a, a pedestrian or everybody else views it and then they view it emotionally, mm -hmm. that's, that's a very different point of view uh, oh. than maybe what the cop was experiencing. Something that, I, that seems clear to me is that it seems to me that, I mean, because I was a police officer before Ferguson and afterwards and just watched this, this whole transformation about how people mm -hmm. talked about the cops and such. And it occurred to me that people um, insert sinister intent when in instead they should insert curiosity. Like, how can an unarmed, how can a police officer shoot an unarmed man? I can think, I can think of about 12 reasons a police officer could shoot an unarmed man, all of which are protected by the Constitution, you know? Correct. Um, but instead, people have, fine, I don't know a lot about their jobs, maybe. They don't understand that. So then instead, they say, well, must have been something sinister. Mm -hmm. And then they want to assign any number of things that are kind of, Sure. Roll off people's tongues really easily There's, these days. Uh, police officers today are, are horribleized by uh, our critics in a way that's not, uh, it, it didn't occur when I was a new officer. And I, I agree that people are grasping for meaning and they want to try and understand without having the benefit of true understanding or even without, and it's not about benefit of the doubt, it's the curiosity is missing. How, how could this be? than reasonable. Because to 
the reasonably trained pipe fitter, brick player, school teacher, it's not reasonable because it's not within their scope of understanding. And that's where civilian police academies can become very, very important, where uh, the ability to uh, hear uh, the opposing side of an argument is, uh, is critical to perhaps not agree with the assessment, but to develop an understanding. Right. Yeah. Um, we, we were talking to even the language around this. Um, is, I remember I, we were talking earlier about hearing the phrase now starting to be introduced or police violence. Mm -hmm. I'm like, police violence? Do you mean police brutality? You know, I'm just curious about the people who are using the term violence. And I know the word violence has negative connotations, and that's what they're trying to get at. Mm -hmm. But police use of force in, at some level is a form of violence. Is that true? It is. Yeah. And I, I agree with you that you know, people love to play with words. Or, t or take ownership of them to manipulate Correct. And it all their had, agenda. Certainly, it has to do with perspective and trying to... Um, articulate their thoughts best because it's true. Anytime an officer uh, under Minnesota law, anytime an officer strikes someone with their hands or with, uh, with an impact weapon or fires a shot at them, it is an assault under Minnesota law. Now the assault is not a criminal offense because of another statute in criminal laws that requires an officer's use of force, whether it's mild or severe, to be for very specifically designed reasons. And that's why officers uh, would not necessarily be charged uh, for a criminal action because the use of force was, uh, was uh, probably, because that's the threshold we deal with, is, was probably reasonable, was probably fit those criteria. And it's true that in recent times, far more officers have been charged with criminal activity than uh, in the past many years. And is that a function of uh, political pressure? Is that a function of people really understanding it or categorizing it in a way by calling it police violence that's getting it, that's having it examined through a different lens? Okay, that's what I see. Um, later on, uh, a jury hears the facts and um, uh, a case is presented. And in that adversarial system of trial, uh, the finder of fact makes an ultimate decision based on the elements of the crime and whether or not, um, and are, they're making the determination then in court if what the officer was, did was reasonable under the circumstances. Nice. Let me ask you a couple of trends that I think kind of are encouraging for me. One is this uh, movement towards tactical disengagement. Mm -hmm. um, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not a patrol supervisor anymore, but you can see that's a big role maybe of the on-scene supervisor and others is to go. What's the risk-benefit ratio here? What happens if we actually uh, don't enter the house? And what if we walk away or whatever? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, tactically, you can probably explain it better than that. And the other one is, um, have you heard this discussion recently about uh, the dispatch priming? You know, how mm -hmm. uh, certain phrases and certain information passed on or not passed on impact how an officer approaches a call. The third thing that I don't hear anyone talking about much, but is what I consider almost appropriate priming when you're the second cop. So when a cop calls for more cops, the other cops arrive, and I think it's fair to say they don't always do a, let's, set, let's assess this situation from the start. Mm -hmm. They basically take the information that the other officer is, hey, I need some help, I'm having trouble with this guy, or whatever, mm -hmm. and they just take it at face value because they trust the other cop's assessment. And they just pick up where that cop, they pick up right at the scene. I don't know if, mm -hmm. I can think of like a couple of scenarios where other cops have arrived and said, you know, we're not, in, we're not starting over with this guy. Mm -hmm. We've already decided you're in trouble and we're going to maybe um, escalate things quicker because we have, we have we already know what we need to know. This other cop has reached their limit. Mm -hmm. So the so to talk about that one first, that can you know there's a, a way to understand that um, when you refer to it as the shared knowledge doctrine, where an officer is hearing a, a report of an incident over the radio, whether it's by dispatch or uh, another officer communicating over the radio, 
you know, they benefit from hearing and perceiving what it means to receive that information. And then they respond to assist. And it's that shared knowledge between officers that helps responding officers in a second or third uh, responding officer role to, to not have to start over once they've arrived. Right. And so essentially, if, if a first responding officer has moved ahead in their investigation or their, or their intervention against criminal behavior, five or six steps, then that shared knowledge allows responding officers to join them at step five or six, as opposed to then step one, which really would require that officer then to move back to square one and start over, which may be perfectly appropriate, which has to do with tactical disengagement. Um, and, there's, and there's value in some situations for the second officer to go, this is too hot right mm -hmm. now. Let me just, I know this, this let me cool this, mm -hmm. this officer down. Hey, let me, let me take a stab at it. That sure. kind of thing. Well, and I'm I, talking more like a cop, the kind of at step five and the other cop goes, I'm jumping in at five. Mm -hmm. And that may be reasonable based on what they've seen. What we would expect any uh, reasonably trained officer to do is to make their own assessment when they arrive based on what they've heard in the pre-incident indicators, which can be uh, radio transmissions or um, even information gleaned off of a bulletin board at the start of roll call because the shift may be looking for a certain person for a certain crime. And then as one officer goes about their shift, they locate the person. Well, the information on the bulletin board at roll call then combined with the officer statements on scene begins to shape in the assisting officer's mind the task at hand. And so depending on the overall severity in each one of these incidents is always uh, very different from one another. It may then endorse or support jumping into the circumstance at step five, but also requires some independent thought. So the second or third responding officers are making their own uh, assessment of the situation. Uh, for I was on our SWAT team for seven years and we would make threshold assessments when we were entering dwellings. Now we had been briefed on the crime at hand and the reason for which we were using a SWAT team to enter a house. And so we would uh, we'd get all of our gear on and we'd assemble, we'd brief our plan as a group, we'd arrive at the address. But when we approached, we had to make our own threshold assessment, depend, which then governed the reasonability of the actions that we had developed in our plan. Well, likewise, and, and this can be hard when uh, an officer is uh, overwhelmed uh, when they're calling for help and you've known this person for a long time and their voice sounds tough or frightened or um, like they're losing emotional or cognitive control. We've all heard that on the radio where somebody sounds freaked out, which adds to the stress that we experience at the time. And yet in almost all cases, when officers exhibit exceptional decision-making, it's because they're making an independent assessment while they're arriving. And it can happen very quickly. It's oftentimes the difference between taking even the briefest of moments to pause before taking an action. Okay, what I hear you saying is like a little lesson plan here. One is uh, encourage, even use that language, encourage officers to make independent observations, mm -hmm. but also, um, be willing to articulate in your in your report what you saw in roll call, what you know about that neighborhood, who you were looking for, and what information you had gotten by the dispatch or what that officer on scene, you know. Um, right. Let me just add all that in, which this is, this is incredibly complex. Some mm -hmm. cops do it so well, very instinctually, because they're, they're just good at their job and they've done it a while. But it, 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 what cracks me up about it a little bit is how much writing, mm -hmm. how Isn't much that true? writing is. And what, I don't know any cop that got into it. I mean, I, I, when I walk through a roll call room or a report writing room and cops are clicking, typing away, I'm like, I, I, I tease them a bit. This is police work, mm -hmm. writing reports, yeah. writing reports. I, nobody, I remember it's shocking through, how much it is a part of policing. Going through report writing and skills and also in the police academy, it made sense that we had to do that. But if I had really any idea how much I was going to write over my career, I should have just become a copywriter. It's not, you know, the officers want to take action. They want to solve problems. And then comes the time where it has to be articulated. And so there's an, there's an, 
there has to be an equivalent emphasis, not only on responding to the hue and cry when people uh, need police to intervene to help them get through their day or to solve a, a significant problem in their lives, but then also an equivalent importance put on the ability to document. What flashed into my head when you were talking about uh, the use of bulletin board information or briefing information is right on point with criticisms for law enforcement today. Because at a certain time, on a certain day, officers may receive information on a crime bulletin involving a certain person. And so they go about their tour, and lo and behold, they come across this person when they're at the Dairy Queen, buy an ice cream for their kids. Then the approach is made, and some perhaps a use of force transaction occurs between the officer and the person. And the general public is upset because he was just buying ice cream mm. for his child. And I would argue in support of the idea generally that we shouldn't use force against people for buying ice cream for their kids. <laughs> and yet that's not, the, that's not the catalyzing factor for why the officer used force. It went all the way back to a briefing they received in their roll call. And so an officer has to be able to articulate the entire scope of their perceptions to include pre-incident information as well as information that unfolded in front of them. And that's where you, you talk about dispatch priming. We get our information from highly qualified, well-paid dispatchers. And yet that information has been passed to the dispatcher from a telecommunicator who answers the 911 call, who speaks to somebody who's probably not happy about the way their life is going at the moment. And so through that translation, not just the spoken word, but then written into digital format, transferred to a dispatcher who didn't hear the phone call, who didn't speak to the complainant, who is now relaying information to the officer, we can start to see how communication styles and abilities to interpret affects the product the officer is receiving. And so those pre-incident indicators shape how an officer sees a circumstance. And then that has to be kept in mind while um, events are unfolding in front of the officer. And they have to marry the two understandings. And it sounds like such a recipe for disaster. However, to a casual listener, they're like, how does it, how is this, this is not a disastrous miscommunication? Well, cops approach calls knowing that some information is bad. That they're not com always confident in, well, well, we'll just see for ourselves, or I'll yes. believe it when I see it, or, um, I mean, so, so, so I just think cops often approach calls sometimes with certain amount of information, but they also kind of hold it a little bit casually because they know that it's gone through a, a bunch mm -hmm. of translations sometimes. And that's, and that, and even the callers might motivations may not be. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, the incidents of, of swatting so calls I think cops, are right. And I think cops adjust a little bit. Um, they hold information somewhat loosely. Mm -hmm. And that, that perspective there is, it highlights the idea that an officer is making independent decisions when they arrive. Yes, exactly. And so they, we rely on the information that comes from dispatch, but not as if we were automatons who are simply going to carry out the direction from a dispatcher. Uh, when an officer is holding information uh, in their mind's eye as they respond, they are making independent observations uh, when they're on scene. And that's, you know, when the stress and pressure is not high, officers have an abundant amount of time to make their assessments as they arrive. Yet when stress and pressure are mounting, when a situation is, is reported to be wildly out of control, then it becomes critical for officers to take the time they need to make an assessment while also responding effectively in, in a timely manner to the issue at hand. Well, that makes a lot of sense. So um, this subject is way bigger than I am, and your level of knowledge and, and insight into it is really impressive to me. Oh, thank you. Um, but anyway, let me do a commercial real quick. Um, so because before we end, I, I want to know that if you enjoy this podcast, you might be interested in my book. It's called Good Cop, Good Cop, A Get Healthy, Stay Healthy Guide for Law Enforcement. I cover a lot of different topics, including some of the things we're discussing today, but mostly I take a mental and emotional wellness point of view on some of this. And also, uh, I like to spend some time talking about clarity about purpose and function yeah, in, in the book. So uh, that can be purchased on Amazon. You can also get more information about this podcast and... Um, um, Blue Watch Training or the book Good Cop, Good Cop at 
this website, goodcopgoodcop.com. So did you get the message from our, our handler here? I did. All right. So something that we didn't touch on in the previous segment was tactical disengagement. And in our agency, it's um, a language we're familiar with, and it's a hot-button issue because officers are, are called uh, by someone to solve a, a severe problem. And yet, when making a threshold assessment, it becomes clear at a certain point that the person we're being called to intervene with or against uh, is, is secluded. They are alone. No one else is in harm's way. And the idea of tactical disengagement is taking the threshold assessment that we've been discussing in a different direction. When we talked about how an officer may be on scene and has progressed to step five in whatever series of steps they need to take, I don't want the listener to think that there's seven steps. Right. By the time you get to five, you're almost there. It may be a 25-step process. It may be a 100-step process. But where an officer may make an initial assessment that I'm going to now join the first responding officer at step five, or maybe in their assessment, it's like, hey, let's slow it down a little bit and still intervene. That's one thing where they're continuing to intervene. But when it may become clear to officers that the situation is stabilized and no one is at uh, an imminent risk of harm, and it's important to understand imminent. Imminent means that something is likely about to happen. Immediate means something is happening right now. So imminent is just shy of immediate. And if people are not facing imminent harm, in part because the subject of our investigation is, uh, is secluded, they're alone perhaps in their home or uh, in a garage or wherever they're separated from everyone else, the idea of tactical disengagement is that we are going to conduct our investigation on the outside and then um, you know, follow up at a future time instead of being a catalyst for some event that is about to take place. You know, the idea, and I don't support the idea entirely that it's police officers that are the catalyst for what some people are calling police violence, Yet, it's true that when we take actions, people respond to those actions. And so that's where tactical disengagement, I think, is a, a wisely applied concept. Because if we don't need to push an issue in that moment that could result in the use of force, perhaps an extreme use of force, because later on we can catch up with the person, then that's tactical disengagement. In my own experience as a watch commander, I'd receive briefings from sergeants all the time where they would have someone who was uh, holed up in a house that had threatened someone with a weapon. And they'd say, yep, and, and now they're alone. And I'd confirm that. How do you know that? And they'd say, well, they brought the person out of the upstairs part of the duplex or all the family members have left and said there's nobody inside but this person. Tactical disengagement doesn't mean pack up everything and totally leave the area. It's a tactical disengagement. I would ensure that the sergeants put someone at the front of the house, in the back of the house, down the alleyways, keeping an eye out in case the person got into a car and left so we could take them on traffic, or uh, to ensure that there wasn't some other disturbance for a period of time. And so we weren't abandoning the investigation. We were just slowing things way down and trying to approach the resolution uh, in a more effective way while keeping in mind that we don't want to catalyze a circumstance. That's, I actually think this, this is going to be good for us in law enforcement. Um, I do as well. Um, one thing, and just that whole concept and just thinking in new ways. And I tell you, one of the big turning points for me about this topic or realization is that as police officers, often we felt responsible for everything we were engaged in. Mm -hmm. So that if we walked away from a situation, that would be on us. And now I think we, we can say, well, is it really on us if we leave them alone in their home? Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. So that I think that was kind of the change partly was just thinking about this in a new way. We understand slowing down, mm -hmm. but also are we tr really responsible? I mean, since, since, since we're here, do we actually have to make contact with that person and they have to go somewhere? Well, not necessarily. Right. And that was a big part of the way I saw my role in the watch commander's office, for example. And even now in charge of property crimes or 
when I was in special operations. Every decision made was my responsibility. And so in my role in the watch commander's office, when a sergeant had advised me of the situation and suggested the tactical disengagement, that was a great suggestion, but I was in charge. And so if I was gonna be in charge, I would be responsible for the decision making. And it was my job to make that clear in case something severe did happen down the road and we had to articulate why we took those measures. It was on my shoulders to explain it, not the rank and file officer and not the first responding supervisor. It was my responsibility to articulate why we did what we did. And I think that's, I believe that's an effective, uh, that demonstrates effective leadership is to take responsibility for those big decisions. Good work. Um, okay, I asked you to think about um, some of this topic. It's a big topic, but use of force or however else you described it from your other experiences and then also maybe some personal experiences with force. Sure. Um, I think that our officers in particular need to keep in mind that the public does support them. And the public does understand that officers do need to use force from time to time in order to accomplish their goals. Even our most strict critics, and some of them I have personal relationships with, share their understanding with me that it's necessary for officers to perform these functions. And yet it seems incongruent because they're also so very critical of what we do. And that's an interesting dichotomy to me. There are, we're surrounded by good people in the world who rely on some neutral person that can respond at their request, like a 911 call, to lend them a hand to get through their day or to solve some problem that, that has a, a criminal uh, uh, element to it. And so our officers need to be encouraged with that. Even the people who would, in the moment, be upset with us, when they're clear-headed, when they realize the situation that was unfolding in front of them, when they have a, a moment to see what was transpiring, that understand police officers need to have the privilege to use force to accomplish their tasks. Um, with that in mind, we have to welcome the scrutiny that comes with it. And part of welcoming the scrutiny is to prepare ourselves through effective training, through uh, understanding policies and procedures by following through with the training we've been provided and to understand what the boundaries and limits are. In our police department in St. Paul, we have uh, prescribed a number of, of tools that we can use and techniques that we're trained in. And there are some agencies that are nearby us that have different tools. Uh, there's for many years, I don't know if it's still uh, applied, but there is an agency that's suburban to St. Paul where they used uh, patrol batons that were essentially nunchucks. Two baton sticks tied at the top with a fabric rope, and there was some padding on it, so it wasn't you know Bruce Lee's nunchucks, but nevertheless, it was a control tool that they were trained in. Or some agencies, in particular on the West Coast, carried side handle batons, known as PR-24s. Those, those are two tools we may not use in St. Paul. And our officers have to understand and abide those regulations. And any officer has to abide and understand the regulations of their department. But by working, but by working through the training they've received and utilizing the tools at their disposal, an officer can, can manage and handle the vast majority of their, uh, of their calls for service. And if they don't have the right tool to be empowered to speak to their bosses and find out, you know, how do we get this thing, this tool, this option that can help us to solve our problems? How about when you were a, a patrol cop? What kind of lessons did you learn, use of force lessons? Oh, it's really good to pause, uh, to, to listen. I want a new patrol cop, I guess. Oh, I brand new. Um, a brand new patrol cop, before I knew all of the things that I believe that I know now, it was that um, you can lose the ability to uh, think and reason very quickly when stress and pressure escalates. Mm. Um, one of my very, well, probably my very first uh, fleeing uh, incident where I was on field training my first phase, so I mean, this goes way back, and I was with 
I was in field training with a legend in his own time. Um, and the car dips on us off of uh, Payne Avenue, pulls onto a side street geranium, doors open up, passenger runs, FTO partners out on foot after the driver and I'm left behind to watch the car. And um, what I can say with certainty is I wasn't doing everything the way that I had been trained in the academy just uh, four to six weeks earlier. I made some very significant mistakes in um, how I approach the situation and not to say that I laid hands on people or, or used force inappropriately, but you know, I didn't necessarily have my gun in the greatest grip. Um, I wasn't communicating well over the radio. Um, I was in a, a poor position of, uh, I was in a position of disadvantage as opposed to a position of advantage uh, because life was real uh, and, and it was happening right in front of me. And that was, according to our policies and procedures, a reasonably trained police officer. Now, in field training. But realizing after just a few moments that I wasn't in the right position and it, having the ability then even to open up my scope of attention so they could realize the mistakes that I was making and then correct them was a big, big lesson. Well, I believe it. I think um, it's hard to imagine that can be replicated in any way other than direct real-life experience. That's true. In our academy, I mean, we can try. I totally get that. And it's all stress inoculation and scenarios. All that is super good, for, even for some of the mechanics. Mm -hmm. and, you know, but it's not, nothing like just you with them and it's dark. What did, when you thought about coming over here, what were you thinking that we might talk about that we didn't? Well, we had discussed up front the, the, the use of force and um, having an understanding or you know, generating in our officers the understanding that the public, you know, doesn't necessarily get it, but that doesn't mean that they're 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 ignorant only because they haven't seen behind the curtain, and we have to allow them. We have to allow the general public to see. I think that um, it's too much for our police officers to expect, and it was when I was new as well, just 23 years ago. It's too much to expect people to agree with us. But we have to strive to share our experiences and our training so they can develop an understanding of what it is we do. We have to uh, feel free to talk to people when they ask questions. And it's it understandably bothersome. If I'm out uh, in the world in my uniform and on a break, I may not want to entertain the question, but the person doesn't necessarily know that I'm on a break. Or if someone, if I'm, I've had this experience many times, certainly in special operations and in my role in the watch commander's office, if I'm out in public in uniform doing something and people are approaching, they may not realize that I'm tied up with something, but it's far easier and more constructive to ask the person to give you some space and tell them I can give you my attention in just a few minutes, let me finish what I'm doing, mm -hmm. as opposed to a terse reply, which is not unnatural and it's, it's very human in nature. Uh, many, most people would do that, but to uh, appreciate the naivete of people that are, are striving to understand us. If you look at uh, what we see on television, there's three uh, overarching themes. There certainly there have been, and now there's, with the advent of uh, reality television, there's another genre on television. But in TV and movies, there's three main storylines. There's doctors, lawyers, and cops. People are fascinated by us, and they want to know what leads us to make the decisions that we make when we're confronted with uh, what we're confronted with on a daily basis. I think if the general public and officers would agree, if they knew the um, doldrums of the work, the paperwork and the evidence collection, the documentation, that would be particularly sexy to the casual viewer. Um, when, when you watch cops on television, you don't go back to the squad room and have the camera sitting over the officer's shoulder for two hours as they hunt and peck on their keyboards. It's the impression that there's all action all the time. And in my experience, that's not true. There's moments of, of thrill and sheer terror that is um, really just bookends a lot of time where there's investigation and follow-up. And so really, I guess what we didn't necessarily get into is more of a framing, not a reframing, but a, a refocusing of our officers' attention about what the public is interested in and how much interest they truly have for us.
And I always marveled when I worked midnights that in so many houses we'd enter when most people, certainly my family was asleep and a lot of people are resting up for the next day. There's some fight or discord happening and you'd walk in and real stories of the LAPD or cops is showing on the television when the cops show up at the house. And it just underscores, <clears throat> excuse me, the fascination people have with us. Yeah. And uh, they want their, they want to know. And so how do we find it in ourselves to teach them? So let's, let me see if I can summarize a couple of things. One is you said something that uh, sounded good to me was the, the, the officer has to not expect them to agree with us automatically. Mm -hmm. Just maybe give that part up. And that they are really actually, actually are pretty curious about us uh, and what we do. I think that they are. And, um, you know, I think the cops could probably enjoy that more if they just, you know, just enjoy that part of the job. Mm -hmm. You know, just sharing that. And the demands on our time are, are not going to slow down uh, in any uh, in any agency. You can, you know, there's the uh, uh, agency suburban to us may only answer uh, 10,000 calls for service a year. And we answer better than 20,000 a month in our city. And those agencies that are smaller than ours don't have the same number of officers we do. So they're busy. There's no question about it. It was always amazing to me and still is, but working in the watch commander's office, hearing constantly on the radio, the dispatchers asking for a car to break which means can you leave the call you're on to respond to this emergency? And it happens all day, on day shift, afternoons, and on nights. So we're busy. And it's hard to take the time in every case to take a moment to answer a question, to be available. And yet when the opportunity presents itself, I think it's a wonderful um, exercise in compassion and in respect for the person who's asking the question to give them the best answer that you can. It doesn't have to be my answer or the chief's answer. It's the best answer you can give in the moment. And well, I'll just, I'll just say something that I did that I really enjoyed, that seemed really natural and obvious to me, but I didn't see other cops do it, is that we'd be on a call, we'd be in front of a house, a big knot of squad cars, and a couple of neighbors would be standing out in their yard. Mm -hmm. And I would walk over to those neighbors and just start visiting with them. Mm -hmm. And just start, and, and they sometimes they'd be super deferential and kind of apologize, you know, just wanted to check. And, and then sometimes, often, I would tell them why we were there, not like mm -hmm. it was some big secret, you know? Sure. And I would say, oh, you know, we, they said somebody had a weapon, looks like it may not have, you know, I would just tell them whatever they want. And I thought it was, to me, it was just such a nice thing to do to the public, is just mm -hmm. fill them in on a little bit why we were there, chat with them a little bit. Because you got, I've been on plenty of calls where the cops are like look, giving them dirty looks, like, what are you looking at me for? Mm -hmm. um, right. And it's well, sometimes that whole cop thing is going, um, you know, just threat or no threat, problem or no th problem, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. I get it. Um, but Well, and you can, you can always tell people what's public. And in any neighborhood, when the cops show up, I mean, we don't get called to the birthday parties to watch the kids blow out their candles. We don't get called to the wedding receptions because everything's great. Fire department does what we well, know. Fire department, they might. Uh, but in a neighborhood, when the cops show up, something's happened. Yeah. We respond to the birthday party when the uncle knocks over the cake or the, <laughs> or the wedding reception when, you know, dad's gone off the deep end. That's when we get called to those things, which means there's discord. People expect that. And so when a courageous neighbor because it takes courage to approach the cops. Not everybody does it. We have to appreciate, those are the people that appreciate us. And when they come out to ask what's going on, it takes just about a minute at a time. Right. Really, you're reassuring them. You're letting them know that everything's going to be okay. Right. Yeah, definitely want to reassure them. And also, too, is if we lose, if we lose those folks, we've lost the neighborhood. Exactly right. Now, you when know. people come out and want to talk, we... In, in particular, my recommendation, if an officer is standing by around a group of officers and there's a small number of them, a number of them solving the problem, and then the other officers are standing by in reserve, is what I'd call that. Look for something to do. And in that moment, it may be just talking to the neighbors that come out, reassuring people that everything's going to be okay. It's one of the fundamental needs for a human being is to know that their situation is going to be okay. You know, we got on this topic when we, uh, when I was saying that the, maybe the officers could benefit from not expecting them to agree with us. Mm -hmm. 
and then you were the other half of that was that the public could benefit from seeing behind the curtain, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are examples of that. Certainly, you know, and and even even um, initiated by a patrol cop on a call versus some special presentation or class we put on, just mm -hmm. in that moment. And and even if the people all they see is this cop is just like really calm and. And he's given, oh, what, what, how the call came in and why there's so many cops there. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's just a great chance to do all that. Well, we've. And I actually just find it enjoyable. I mean, it's hard to imagine a cop wouldn't enjoy talking to those folks, I guess. Maybe well, I and, that's, think and that's a gift that you have. You have the ability to relate to people and articulate yourself. And, and our police officers come from all walks of life, and some aren't particularly talkative. It uh, doesn't mean that they're arrogant or rude. They just. Good point. Good don't point. necessarily have much to say, but it's those those small moments. You know, I've seen many times, and as I mentioned, I worked in the training unit. We hosted civilian police academies. We've hosted open houses. In the civilian police academies, people that go to those are engaged. They want to know. They have an objective. But we've had open houses, and we have community meetings on a regular basis that are very that are attended with very small numbers. And so, if that's true, and I've seen evidence that suggests it's true. How do we engage individuals one-on-one -on -one when the opportunity presents itself? And I mentioned the shared knowledge doctrine as it relates to police departments. There's also uh, another concept called the shared narrative where people in communities will share the stories they've had. Essentially, it means when I get picked up on traffic for speeding, I'll tell five people about that experience. Then those five people tell five people, and then suddenly it's 11 people that are touched by the officer's behavior on the traffic stop. The shared narrative goes for constructive and positive interactions as well, where the one person may tell five people about it, and those five people may tell five people, then 11 people hear about that interaction of the really nice police officer that took a moment to explain what was happening. It's not fair to say that that will happen in every case where 11 people are involved in that conversation, just like it's not fair to say that 11 people are going to be aware of some negative impression that one person had on a traffic stop. We've yeah. got to maximize our contacts with people in every case. And you're not saying the cops just need to be nice all the time either. No, certainly not. The reason I say that is that's a, that's a narrative I want the public to have, that, to share that, I guess, a shared narrative that this really nice cop did this really nice thing. And mm -hmm. there was recently some cop did some really nice thing, and it's been in the paper constantly. I'm mm -hmm. thinking, okay, big deal. But part of it is um, another communication I kind of done recently with the public more or people I know is give the cops some room to be not nice or crabby or stern or a mm -hmm. little tired or a little bit, you know, you know, so I, I actually, I don't want the listeners that are cops thinking mm -hmm. that we're telling everybody, you just got to be nice. You got to be well, nice. Agreed. You know? You're not saying that. It's just that. Well, nice is a value judgment. Yeah. And that's, and I, I keep, hit, I come back full circle on that because what I think is nice may not be something that you think is nice. Yeah. And so a better word is respectful. Yeah. How do you deliver the information in your best way, um, which doesn't have to be uh, with a cherry on top of it, but how do you deliver the information, answer the questions in an effective way? Because that person may call that nice. That may, person may, they'll call it what they want to call it. Right. I think that we run the risk of alienating people when we come across um, uh, in a terse fashion, or if we're rude to them or dismissive, that's where we begin to um, to alienate the people who are curious and want to know. Um, I agree with you 100%. It's not about being nice. It's about being respectful and, and let, uh, let effective. The, right. Let the niceness come out of your core desire, and that is to be, as you said, either respectful or have a high value in helping people maintain their dignity. Mm -hmm. So that if it comes out nice, great. If it comes out stern, great. It's, it's but they keep your, their dignity your goal and, was to hold and maintain dignity and 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 uh, or respect or whatever yeah. phrase you want. Something else I'd like to mention is at least my personal opinion is respect is a gift. And throughout my career, I've heard officers say that well, you have to give respect to get respect, and I'll give respect when I get it. Oh man, and, this is good. And that's that's dangerous because if you have to give respect to get it. But you require respect first before you give your own, then that's conditional respect. And 
it's conditioned on the interaction that you receive from another person. And my, my assessment is that respect is a gift that we give to people freely. Just like time is a gift that we give to people freely. Um, we, even in the face of disrespect or, uh, you know, a bad temper or, or some off-putting rude behavior, to return in kind with respect takes the, for me, it takes the impact out of that because I'm not fighting with the person. I'm not trying to be supreme to them. I'm going to give them my best response in the time, which may not be the world's greatest response or how I would do it on my best day. But that gift of respect to people throughout. You can be respectful while using force. Uh, you can be respectful while uh, engaging an interested pedestrian or neighbor, uh, respectful to a supervisor, respectful to a subordinate. Um, that has to do with your delivery. When police officers are preparing to use force against someone, it costs them nothing to be polite, to be respectful. You don't have to degrade the person to apply the force that's necessary to affect their arrest or to prevent violent or criminal conduct. Um, respect is a gift. And in my opinion, we have to be prepared to give it freely and without anything in expectation in return. That was very well said. Thank you. Let's end with that. Um, thank you so much, Commander Josh Legault. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. I did as well. Mm -hmm.